the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, how important is it that we have a consistency of messaging? And then we're joined by Chris Rice, one of the authors of the book, More Than Equals. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, on this Monday. Hope your week is off to a good start. I want to talk about something from the weekend. Uh, it feels like as you turn on the news right now, it is more and more and more dominated uh, by COVID news. The Delta variant, once again, it doesn't it kind of feel like we've gone in a time, a time machine back to about a year ago, and we're kind of having the same conversations about schools, about churches, about restaurants and businesses, but it does ultimately feel like people are a lot angrier right now. I think there's a couple different reasons for that, that emotions are running high. And then I want to play you a clip of something uh, that I saw this weekend. I think emotions are running higher for a couple different reasons. One, we're just tired. We're tired. We have COVID fatigue. Uh, it has been politicized. It has been the goalposts feel like they keep moving. Uh, but two, I think the vaccine was supposed to be and is a game changer. But the messaging we're hearing from uh, the, the CDC and other places seems to discount the fact that those of us who have been vaccinated and especially for adults, everybody who wants the vaccine can definitely have gotten it by now. I literally drove by a Walgreens yesterday where the sign said, we have walk-in COVID vaccine. You don't even have to make an appointment anymore. You could just walk in and do it. It's free. Uh, and, and so I think a lot of us who have been vaccinated, I've been vaccinated. A lot of us who have been vaccinated are going, wait, I thought that this was supposed to be my entryway back into normal life. But now you tell me that I need to wear masks, that my kids need to start school with a mask. And and I think uh, there is, there has been, but I think there's a real problem right now with messaging and consistency of messaging. I am not one of these conspiracy theory believers who's like, oh, they've been trying to control power and all of this stuff. But it does seem like there is selective outrage, even from the people who are supposed to be leading the charge on this right now, that does kind of make you raise an eyebrow and go, what, why, why? It's just causing confusion. And with that in mind, I want you to hear what Dr. Fauci said. Again, I've been a Dr. Fauci fan through most of this time. I'm not one of these people who is going, oh, we uh, literally there's this movement to kind of get him in prison. And I think it's just craziness. But uh, Dr. Fauci was on Meet the Press yesterday with Chuck Todd, and they were talking about the Delta variant and all that's going on. I want you to hear this minute clip from Dr. Fauci. Well, I'm very concerned, Chuck, that we're going to see another surge related to that rally. I mean, to me, it, it's 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 understandable that people want to do the kinds of things they want to do. They want their freedom to do that. But there comes a time when you're dealing with a public health crisis 
that could involve you, your family, and everyone else, that something supersedes that need to do exactly what you want to do. I mean, you're going to ultimately be able to do that in the future, but let's get this pandemic under control before we start acting like nothing is going on. I mean, something bad is going on. I mean, we've got to realize that. All right, so him and Chuck Todd are talking about the fact that, you know what, we've got to buckle down here. And and it sounds a lot like what we were talking about a year ago. But here's the interesting thing, and this is, I think, the frustration for so many of us who are going, help me understand what's true and what's not. Kind of like, why are we continuing to move the goalpost? Uh, again, Dr. Fauci, he, he went in on Sturgis here, an outdoor uh, motorcycle gathering, the largest one in the country, which, as he said, will be hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, but Dr. Fauci said nothing last week about Lollapalooza in Chicago. And what a lot of people are seeing is Dr. Fauci said nothing uh, and others said nothing uh, when the reports came out about the huge party that uh, for President Obama, former President Obama's birthday this week out on Martha's Vineyard. And again, they're a little different, but in, in I, I want to talk, I, I want us to focus on perception because yes, each one of these is unique. But if you're one of these people who thinks, why do they just keep harping on places where you know, Republicans are in charge. Or, of course, Dr. Fauci is not going to say anything about President Obama or whatever else. They, they seem to, whether intentionally or unintentionally, add fuel to the fire. And I want to be like, listen, let's just make some, let's set the goalposts. I understand variants come and this and that. But what's the goal here right now? Is it to raise the vaccination level? Is it uh, to lower the death count? Because right now, for those who are vaccinated, uh, Death is really low for those who aren't. Unfortunately, we're seeing story after story with this Delta variant. Is it a caseload? Is it caseload amongst the unvaccinated or amongst everybody? What is the goalpost right now that we're trying to reach? I think if we could all know, hey, once we hit this, then uh, once we hit X, then Y is going to happen. I think we'd feel better about it, but it feels like, wait, we're back to masks even though I got vaccinated and I'm reading this New York Times op-ed that said masks are actually bad for kids and other people are writing, no, the kids need it. Uh, I'm hearing about lockdowns again and people saying lockdowns do work and don't work. And it just feels like we're back to where we were, but now we've all been vaccinated. And I really do struggle with it, but I also want to end with this. I think we as Christians need to be really careful right now. I think that this is both an opportunity uh, and a pitfall about how do we react. Our culture, our, our, our country, our people are very uh, worked up right now. And so the question is, am I going to add fuel to that fire or am I going to be a peacemaker who, while speaking truth, still shows compassion, still shows grace, still shows forgiveness, still shows love, still watches out for my neighbor? Or am I going to be somebody fanning the flames. I think the church in general, I think that we as individual Christ followers, we have a calling on our lives to not just uh, voice our opinion, but also, or more so, to do it in a way that's loving, that that promotes peacemaking, uh, that mirrors Jesus. And so I would start there by saying, hey, as frustrating as all of this is, and I got to be honest, I'm finding it really frustrating Will I react as Jesus would react, or am I going to mirror the culture around me? This is an opportunity for the church to be light in darkness. It's also a pitfall because we could really lose our witness here, as has happened a lot over the last 
1500 days or whatever uh, it has been. So I thought we'd start there because that's all anybody again is talking about COVID-19 and the Delta variant. Well, coming up next, Chris Rice is going to join us. Uh, Chris is the co-author of a book called More Than Equals, Racial Healing for the Sake of of the gospel. This is an important book for this time, and we're excited to talk to Chris next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today as my co-host Aubrey Sampson is on vacation, but I'm thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of a book that came out back in 1993, but you're going to hear in a second here why it's coming back out. That book is called More Than Equals. One of those authors is named Chris Rice. Chris, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Brian. Thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. Hey, Chris, before we jump into the book and a bunch of other things, I would love for you just to introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit. Well, thank you. Um, yes, well... I grew up as a missionary kid, actually, in South Korea. My parents served with the Presbyterian Church. And then my life was interrupted by in college when I went to Mississippi, which is the story of More Than Equals. Mm -hmm. After 17 years in Mississippi, I helped to start the Center for Reconciliation at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina, and then served with my wife, Donna, with the Mennonite Central Committee in South Korea for mm. a number of years. And now I am in New York City with the United Nations Office of Mennonite Central Committee. And my life has really been somehow caught up in God's calling of reconciliation all mm. along the way. Oh, that's great. And we're going to talk much more because in so many ways, your book, which came out in 1993, is uh, it was important then, but man, is it kind of prophetic to what's going on now. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But w tell us, why is this book being re-released? What is kind of the celebration that's going on with InterVarsity Press right now? Yeah, so InterVarsity Press celebrated its 75th anniversary. Mm. And in honor of that anniversary, they chose, I, I guess, InterVarsity probably published hundreds and hundreds of books. Uh, they chose 27 books that re they regarded as I iconic, best-selling books over those years, and they republished them in the Signature Collection mm. series. And I'm very grateful that More Than Equals, the book that Spencer and I wrote, was included in that, in that celebration series. Yeah, that's a great honor. So congratulations on that. As I said, it's a it's a book that really speaks to a lot that's going on right now. Uh, you mentioned Spencer, your co-author, Spencer Perkins. Uh, could you talk to us uh, about not only what's the book about, but as you said, there's a story behind this book. And I know it's hard to kind of encapsulate a 17 year story. But could you tell us especially of the relationship between you and Spencer and and how that led to this book? Yeah, so. I met Spencer when I was about in my early 20s, when I, when I went to Mississippi to, to serve with this ministry in Jackson, Mississippi, called Voice of Calvary, that was founded by Spencer's father, mm. John Perkins, who is a oh, well-known yeah. pastor, community um, activist, and reconciliation leader. 
And um, actually, the first time I met Spencer was in a meeting. And Spencer, in the course of that meeting, stood up and asked a question. And these are the first words that I heard Spencer say. What are all you white people doing here? Mm. Now, that was not from how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so More Than Equals is really the story. At the heart of the story of our book is how Spencer and I, from our very different backgrounds, became friends, but more than friends, became what we called yoke fellows, yoked together mm. into a common mission as part of our community in Mississippi, a mission of, of racial healing. Yeah. yeah. And, and really more than equals is tells us our stories and then the lessons we learned about that difficult daily, but I would say joyful work of becoming a new people across racial divides. Yeah, yeah. So using yours and Spencer's friendships, what were some of the difficulties even in bridging the divide one-on-one uh, -on -one as friends? Because I'm sure it's, like you said, it's just a sweet friendship or was a sweet friendship, but I'm sure there were difficulties along the way. What were some of those? Well, the journey was was all all joy and all difficulty and often, you know, all that within one hour to the next. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you can imagine over 17 years, I mean, we're, we're living together in uh, our church lived in the, the same inner city neighborhood, um, the same zip code. And Spencer grew up in Mississippi. Mm. He grew up integrating a white school where he was the only black person in his class. He was humiliated every day. No one spoke to him for two years. And furthermore, he, uh, his father, John, was, um, because of his civil rights work, was actually almost beaten to death mm. in a jail cell by state police officers in 1970. And Spencer, the morning after his father was almost beaten to death, visited John in a jail cell, in the jail cell with his mother. Those are the kind of experiences Spencer came from. Yeah. I grew up thinking that I was the solution mm. to racism. I grew up with blinders. I yeah. grew up unaware of my own, my own being poisoned by the racial, by the racist roots of, mm. of America. And, and so for me, it was really a journey of the challenging journey of coming to see how I was tainted by racism and and then of Spencer and I together um, joining in friendship. I mean, we were drawn to each other really out of respect, out of um, a common mission and um, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it was it was very challenging from our very different backgrounds. But we came to I think what's what's a very rare thing in this country is for a as being part of a community of black and white people who really understood, had the same understanding of the challenge and a, and a commitment to work together on a daily basis uh, for, for a new reality. Yeah, yeah. And we're, uh, Chris is going to stay with us after the break. We're going to talk much more about kind of the current landscape of our culture, of the church, 
uh, and, and what the, why this book is so important right now. But I, I do would I'd love to know, Chris, in 1993, uh, there, there weren't a lot of books, especially evangelical publishers. It's you wrote here rarely, if ever, did books on race. How was it? Um, what was the reaction in 1993 to the book that you and Spencer Perkins put out? Well, I would say at first, the publisher was reluctant to publish our book because they didn't think it was going to reach a very wide audience. Mm. What happened, though, was the kind of 1991 version of George Floyd, which was the beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles. Mm. And then the, the uprising, the violence the division that erupted in Los Angeles. And our book was released in, in the aftermath of that. And yeah. so there, there actually, you know, was a kind of a wake up call within the church. And so our book gained a hearing and um, it, it really came at a time where I think the message was really, was really needed and where people were ready to, to, to read and listen yeah. and, 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 and engage. Yeah. Again, you can find more of Chris's blog at reconcilers.wordpress.com. Also on Twitter at reconcilers. Chris Rice is the co-author of More Than Equals, Racial Healing for the Sake of the Gospel. This book came out all the way back in 1993. So you might wonder why we're talking about it. Well, that's because this book is being re-released as part of a special thing that IVP InterVarsity Press is doing at their 75-year anniversary here. So uh, kind of an honor for Chris uh, and his co-author, Spencer Perkins. As we talked about, now this book really speaks prophetically that you wrote in 1993 to a lot of what's happening now in 2020 and 2021. And let me start here. How is the landscape of the church, but also culture, uh, the same as in 1993 right now? And how do you see it as much different? Well, gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, there you go. Uh, you know, I, I think American history is a, is a story of, of, um, of retrenchment and progress and retrenchment. Mm. And I think that, um, that whenever there's great racial progress in our, in our country, there's also a, a backlash. That, mm. That's a really hist a historical uh, cycle. And, and so I think that, like, we can see a lot of progress. Um, there was a lot of progress in Spencer's lifetime. I mean, schools were integrated, for example. The, the school that he went to was, in, was integrated. Um, you know, he wasn't able to vote. That changed. Mm. Um, you know, I think that President Obama being elected was a sign was a sign of of racial progress mm. but then we had the um, murder of George Floyd mm. and we had an insurrection on the capitol um, led by many white supremacists so we 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 see this backlash mm. and so the calling is how do we get at this deep malignancy uh, America the only modern nation with slavery in its midst from the very beginning. And it takes time to, to root that out and become a new people. Mm. And so I think that we have to now recommit ourselves to that deep work of racial healing in a fresh way. And I hope that that's how people can, what people can receive by reading More Than Equals today. Yeah. 
Yeah. What do you see as the opportunity? And I use that word specifically. Uh, what is the opportunity for the church right now, culturally, as all of this stuff is still going on around us? I think the opportunity for the church is to bring together truth and love mm. and build what Martin Luther King, a, a Christian pastor, called the beloved community, that love without truth lies. So we have to have truth, truthfulness about our racial problem. At the same time, truth without love kills. And we've got to hold together truth and love. And, you know, I think we can, I hope we can all agree that Jesus is anti-racist. Hmm. Jesus is anti-oppression. At the same time, Jesus is not just anti. Jesus in Christ's new creation, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, that Jesus is calling us to become a new people, a new community, what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. And so I think that is the calling and challenge for the church, yeah. is how do we bring love and truth together and create a new community in real zip codes, in real communities, in yeah. real churches. Yeah. And that people-to-people engagement, we need political policy change just as much. We need people-to-people engagement, people-to-people change. And what, what Spencer and I experienced, I believe, is the opportunity, which is how strange, difficult ground becomes holy ground. Mm. That's the story of the church in Acts, going across the boundaries of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. That's the opportunity now, is to become that, for strange ground, difficult ground, to become a holy ground, a ground of becoming equals, but more than equals. Yeah. Called and to a common mission. That's good. I, I wanted to jump. You, you segued right to where I wanted to go. That was such a beautiful picture. The title of your book being more than equals. A lot of people probably think equality is the ultimate goal. Like we're trying to get equality. And once we reach equality, that's it. Like, that's great. Uh, but that's why I'm intrigued by the title more than equals. What, what do you mean by uh, paint a picture of what it looks like to be more than equals? Well, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't mean let's be friends now alone. Um, and it, and it, and it doesn't mean equal, it doesn't mean passing over equality to friendship. It means working for justice together, side by side, working for justice. You know, we've seen, um, the pandemic has revealed disparities, Mm -hmm. um, within, within our country, disproportionate deaths of African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans from, from COVID-19, I mean, it's affected all of us, but some communities disproportionately. That calls for work uh, in, in, in addressing um, disparities, systemic disparities, such as mm-hmm. within, within healthcare, um, economic uh, disparities. There's, you know, there's um, uh, a wealth gap between African-Americans and white Americans, for example, within, within our country. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's about building beloved communities locally where we build common relationship, where we have honest conversations together about our racial challenge, and we, and we work side by side in our local communities um, to be companions, 
but also to work to work for change. That's good. Uh, Chris, again, super grateful for the generosity of time you've given to us. I I guess I'd want to close this way, uh, specifically uh, around the issues of, of, um, you know, reconciliation and all of these things that you guys kind of talked about way back in 1993. Are you hopeful right now for the church when you look at kind of the church of America? Are you hopeful that, that we can see progress and continue to grow in this? I'm hopeful because of God, Mm. because God is always at work for change. God is always redeeming us. You know, when I look at when I look at my own lifetime, I thought things really were getting better. Mm. And now we we have, you know, the whole what's been exposed through the pandemic, through the George Floyd, the Capitol. Uh, Those things are are very disturbing for me. And um, so, you know, we need, we need fresh voices to speak now. So Spencer and I spoke at our time. Mm. Um, I think our book is relevant. I hope people will dig in and look at our successes, our failures, our struggles, our methods. But we also need to look to fresh voices today for this new time. And so I have hope because I believe, believe in a God of hope and a Christ of resurrection. That's really good. That's a great word to end on right there. Again, uh, Chris Rice, co-author, along with his friend Spencer Perkins of the book More Than Equals, Racial Healing for the Sake of the Gospel. We'd encourage you to go pick that up wherever it is you get your books. Uh, you can also find more of Chris's blog at reconcilers.wordpress.com. Also connect with him on Twitter at Reconcilers. That's at Reconcilers. Chris, it's great to meet you. Thanks for spending so much time with us today. Thank you so much, Brian. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Well, word came out yesterday uh, of the death of a sports legend. Not a surprise. This is... Uh, he has had pancreatic cancer. He is nine, was 91 years old. He's one of the winningest, most famous college football coaches by the name of Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden uh, was the football coach of uh, Florida State University for many, many, many years. Uh, and Bobby Bowden, along with usually in like the 90s and the early 2000s, it was Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno of Penn State who were uh, kind of nip and tuck for most wins in NCAA college football history. And so Bobby Bowden won national championships, had great teams, and uh, was kind of a lovable figure. Bobby Bowden was also an outspoken uh, follower of Jesus. And uh, Bobby Bowden, you might have heard clips this week where he talked about he saw his coaching as an opportunity uh, to glorify Jesus and to point people towards him. And I was really encouraged as I heard those quotes, being reminded of, okay, that's kind of our uh, calling as well that we too uh, are called to use our platforms, uh, not for our own advancement, for, for the advancement of the gospel. And there was a, uh, Bobby Bowden, there was this, um, I saw this really fast clip going around uh, of something he said that I think gives a uh, idea into how he viewed his platform and also kind of what he saw as his purpose in his life. Let's listen to that. If we don't go out and talk about Jesus, How's the world going to know? 
I just love that. If we don't go out and talk about Jesus, how's the world going to know? There's this simpleness to that that uh, is very Bobby Bowden, right? He's going, hey, if we don't actually talk about Jesus, how's anybody going to know? It reminds me of the passage in Scripture that says, uh, if if we do not preach, and how will they hear? And and who's going to go? It's this idea that we as Christians have a a calling and a responsibility to not only live out the gospel, uh, but to also go and speak the gospel. Uh, and that can get tricky sometimes. We live in a culture where that's not so easy now. And when we think about speaking the gospel, we begin to think about uh, those people we see with megaphones on the on the corner, or we start thinking about people uh, who are go door to door. I've shared the story uh, multiple times here on the show before. Uh, that when I was in high school, that was kind of my introduction to uh, talking about Jesus. And it made me very nervous. We went to literally, my youth group went on a trip. Uh, and it was a ton of fun. But we went on a trip where in the morning, they would uh, give you an apologetics lesson, an evangelism lesson. And like, how do you share your faith? And then they'd send you out in twos. As high school kids, I was sent on the boardwalk of Atlantic City with another person going around and just going up to people and going, hey, uh, you know, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Like it was just super uh, intimidating. Uh, funny story. A couple of years ago, I was in California with my daughter uh, and we were at Lake Tahoe. I was out there for a wedding and we were sitting on the beach and I saw these two guys look really nervous. They were approaching us. And I go, ah, <laughs> I know what they're about to do. And uh, that's exactly what they do. They came up and they had a clipboard and they asked me a question. And I said to them, hey, uh, just so you know, I'm a pastor. Uh, I believe I, I'm a Jesus follower and uh, I, I want to encourage you guys. You're doing a great job. And they got super relaxed after that. And I was like, oh, I just wish that you could be that relaxed when you had approached me. Uh, but I, you know, I prayed for them and just kind of encouraged them. And then I told that story to my daughter and she was like, oh, okay. Now I, I I see why that was nerve wracking for you, but but all of us, the truth is, that's not what we're called to do. We are called to live out the gospel and speak the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to the people that we are in relationship with. Who are the people that God has put in your orbit? Who what is your collection of people? to whom I can live out the gospel, I can speak the gospel, I can pray for, and, and then how do we want to, how do we do that best? That's why I want to uh, spend the rest of our time here. Uh, how do we share the gospel? Have you ever wondered that question? Like we, we're told often, go and make disciples, go do this, but how do we do it? How do we do this well? I, I found this at a uh, website called churchleaders.com. Our old friend, Ed Stetzer, friend of the show, although Ed has not been on in a while, uh, but friend of the show, Ed Stetzer, he wrote an article entitled Engaging Culture Well, How to Share Your Faith Critically and Contextually Today. How to Share It Critically and Contextually. He says, in every time period and historical context during which it has been shared, the gospel has confronted culture in one way or another. And he kind of walks through a history lesson, but he wants to ask, uh, how do we best share the message of hope? How do we share the message of hope that we have and trust God to change hearts and minds? Like, I'm not the one who's got to go convince people. But Ed, I, I really appreciate what he's doing here. He just want to ask, how do I position myself to speak the good news of the gospel and then leave it in God's hands? He gives a couple pointers. He says, one, pursue understanding. 
He says, when we find ourselves in conversation with individuals from other cultures or other backgrounds, uh, particularly those who don't see eye to eye with us on spiritual matters, it can be easy to enter into prophetic preacher mode. Sometimes, though, he says the most effective way to share is to keep our mouths closed. And he touches on Acts chapter 17, where Paul visits Athens and he says, talks about their gods. He says, we must practice a certain level of cultural literacy before offering criticism or commentary. We need to understand and then we can open the door to sharing truth. He says, number two, and this is a huge one, build relationships. People respond well to the gospel in relational context. He says, well, I'm confident that God can and does work through a variety of evangelistic efforts. I know from personal experience that the gospel is best shared between two people who've established a certain rapport. So be in relationships with people, make friends, have people outside the Christian bubble of whom you're friends with, your neighbors, parents of the other kids on your kids' teams, kids, parents from school, wherever else it might be, make friends, build relationships. And three, Ed says, make the message relatable. Don't speak in Christian ease, uh, but that there are certain things we all share as human beings, he says, the desire to be known, loved, valued. But so too, there are aspects of the Christian gospel that speak to each of us in different and personal ways that we all desire to be known. And Ed finishes it this way. The gospel is powerful, but so too are the ways we deliver it to people. Let's learn to share it with understanding through relationships by making it relatable. I thought that would be helpful for us to hear because so many of us are scared to talk about Jesus. We're scared to talk about Jesus, but we but we also know we have this guilt because we're, we know that we're called to talk about Jesus. And I think Ed kind of boils it down here. Understand the, the people you're talking to. Build relationships. You don't need to lead uh, with the sales pitch. And then number three, make it relatable. Look for the places that that people are hurting or the way that you could speak into. Uh, there's a lot of that going on right now with COVID. So what's it look like to engage culture? Well, some really good words there from Ed Stetzer. Well, coming up next, uh, next hour, we're going to be joined by David French. But before we do that, I want to talk about the qualifications of a pastor, the qualifications of a leader who are worthy to be followed. We're going to ask that question next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what are the most important qualifications of a pastor and Christian leader? And then we're joined by our friend David French, Senior Editor at The Dispatch. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined usually by Aubrey Sampson, but my friend Aubrey is away on uh, on vacation with her family, enjoying some rest and relaxation. We're happy for her and Kevin and their, their kids. Uh, hopefully they're having a great time. Aubrey will be back with us next week. I do want to pause and make sure to acknowledge something that happened over the weekend in the city of Chicago. It was yet another violent weekend in Chicago with at least 66 victims shot and eight killed. Uh, and all you might have seen uh, on the news, too, that one police officer was shot dead and another was in critical condition after they were shot in the line of duty uh, during a traffic stop. This was a female officer who uh, who passed away, 29 years old, with a two- or three-month-old child. Just heartbreaking to see. 
and uh, you just saw kind of the outpouring of support and just, it's just heartbreaking. I don't have answers, friends. I don't bring these up to be like, well, let me pontificate about this. I just want to say it's heartbreaking and we can never become numb to this stuff. 66 people, as I think that's the number I said, or it might've been more, uh, shot this weekend in Chicago, a police officer just ambushed and killed another one hanging on for his life right now, barely. Uh, there, there are real problems. There are real violence problems right now that uh, we've talked to many pastors in the city who are, who are doing their best to pray and to work. But I think even if you don't live in the city, uh, you know, I know myself, I live in the suburbs and it feels like a million miles away when you read the stories, but we could be praying. We could be praying for the people down there for, for that God would bring about revival. We could be praying for the churches and the pastors down there uh, that God would do a powerful work. But I did want to make sure to acknowledge that because that's just a difficult story. It is, uh, man, to read. I did. I watched a news report about that uh, poor police officer, 29-year-old woman who was shot and killed. And uh, to read that she was a pretty new mom, uh, it's just heartbreaking. It's tragic. Uh, and it's got to stop. And I don't, I don't have the answers except to say I'm going to pray. And I'm going to call people to pray. And we're going to support people who are trying to, who are down there in the midst of it, trying to make a difference uh, and pray that God works a miracle because there's too, this happens all too often, especially in the summertime here in the city of Chicago. So I wanted to make sure to touch on that. Well, also wanted to, uh, we're going to be talking to David French here in a minute, and we're going to be talking about uh, not just masculinity, kind of what what did we what have we been learning from that podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, but undergirding that is also what are the qualifications of a leader? What are the most important things in a leader? And Tim Challies wrote over at Church Leaders, he wrote why we must emphasize a pa- pastor's character over his skill, and I and I I think he really gets at it. But before that, I do I just want to share some stories from my own life. As you know, I'm a pastor, Aubrey's pastor. Uh, I pastor Four Corners Community Church in Darien, and uh, so often we can get caught up in uh, as pastors that I need uh, I need great presence, I need great um, you know magnetism, I need to be the best speaker, I need to be this uh, visionary leader, and all, and all of those things are important, charisma, all of that. But when I think about the pastors in my own life who inspired me and kind of laid the groundwork for what I want to do. I think about some of the pastors from when I was a young kid. Uh, You know, I've talked about this before, but my pastor growing up was the dad of my best friend. And so I was in their house all the time and I got to see him more as like a dad and as a coach and all of this stuff. And he certainly wasn't a perfect guy, Uh, but there was a quality to his character like right now, if you asked me what is one thing he preached about, I'm not sure I remember any sermons he ever preached. I'm not even sure I really remember what our church services were set up like growing up. Like I don't, I'm not sure I could sketch it out. Uh, but I do know that as uh, that he kind of made an impression on me that made me say uh, when it, when it kind of came up, do I want to be a pastor? Going okay, I, I think of that as a positive thing. I also think about my youth pastor growing up. And uh, again, I don't remember one thing that he taught, but I remember that he would hang out with me uh, and that he had a good marriage, uh, that he loved his kids, that he, uh, you know, to the point that we flew him out to do our wedding out here. And uh, there's something, I think we all get this deep down, that the most important thing about 
uh, a a leader, a Christian leader, a pastor. It was might no, no here. Hear me here. This might not grow the biggest church. Some of the other things uh, might might grow the biggest church, uh, but it's it's sustainable. It sustains, and that's character. So Tim Challies here at Church Leaders writes about character. He says the New Testament clearly, repeatedly, and unapologetically lays out the qualifications of a pastor. What is so remarkable yet so often overlooked is this. Pastors are called and qualified to their ministry, not first through their talent, their finely honed skill, or their great accomplishments, but through their godly character. That's how Challies starts here. And he talks about the qualifications of a pastor in the New Testament. He says, I cannot emphasize this too strongly or too often. And I really mean that. We cannot overemphasize the primacy of character. A great many of the problems we see in the local and global church today are caused by the failure to heed this simple principle. So many Christians could be spared so much trauma if only their churches would refuse to put a man or woman in leadership who is lacking character. So many congregations would be spared spared so much pain if only they would remove men and women who prove they don't have the kind of character God demands. This failure to heed what God makes plain regarding the qualifications of a pastor is a terrible blight upon the Christian church. And he closes this way, and then I want to reflect. He says, I'm sure there are many more reasons we could provide, but the point is clear. When it comes to the pastors who will lead his church, God values character far ahead of accomplishment. When it comes to pastors, God looks past people of great talent or achievement to call people of character, and we must do the same. I th- this is the thing that keeps bubbling up about the church right now. It's character versus charisma. You could have both, but so often it appears that churches are, are valuing things like charisma because those are what draw huge crowds, but character is the true calling of the pastor and the leader. It is uh, men and women who can, who can be uh, respected, whose character can be aspired to, uh, who, who then will love and care for their people day in and day out in the church. And we have to get this right. I believe as we continue to platform people of questionable character, we will continue to have the black eyes that the church has been seeing. So I thought this article was really important because it's just bubbling up over and over and over again. Well, coming up next, David French, senior editor of the at the Dispatch, columnist at Time Magazine, author of Divided We Fall. We're going to talk about all sorts of things with David French next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, usually joined by Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is out of town with her husband and kids this week, hopefully enjoying uh, some rest and relaxation. But I'm thrilled to be joined by a real friend of the show, senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist at Time Magazine, author of uh, Divided We Fall, that is David French. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back. Oh, it's always our pleasure. We're really grateful for how generous you are with your time. And like we said, you've been on many times, but in case there's people out there who haven't heard you before, why don't you introduce yourself so our people can get to know you a little bit more? Yeah. So um, as you said, I'm, I'm a columnist for Time, senior editor at The Dispatch, longtime constitutional litigator, 
um, veteran, was served in uh, Iraq in 0708 with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. Um, and, you know, Christian, husband, mm-hmm. dad of three, grandfather of one. Oh, I think yes. that hits all the high points. There you go. There you go. I've, from everyone I've talked to, grandfather is the top one right there. Everyone that I've talked to. <laughs> Who's become a grandparent? Well, David, uh, you wrote uh, just this weekend. Uh, anyone who listens to the show knows that Aubrey and I have talked every week about this new Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And you called it one of the most remarkable podcasts you've ever heard. So let's just start there. Why are you loving this podcast? And really, why do you think it has such traction in the evangelical world right now? Yeah, so there's a lot. Boy, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is I think that there are a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of reports that will talk about why somebody fell. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, why is it that this celebrity, you know, what were all the warning signs about this celebrity or that celebrity or this, you know, this leader and that leader? And so, you know, we're kind of used to that kind of narrative, which can be interesting and and important all on its own. But what Mike Cosper does on this one is he really spends a lot of time so far, you know, we're only about halfway through it with why Mark Driscoll became and why Mars Hill became a sensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is so important to understand. Why was it? Why did he become so big? Why did why did he resonate with so many people? Um, and that's something that we often just completely skip through. You know, when we talk about, well, why why did a celebrity pastor become a celebrity in yeah, the first place? Yeah. And and I think that's one of the that that in many ways is more interesting and more important than the sort of standard narrative of a person who gets an enormous amount of power and an enormous amount of influence and has arrogance and pride. And that's a that story. We know we recognize that story, but it's also super important to understand why did they become what they were? Yeah. Because after somebody falls, then often that you wonder what it, it, there's a sort of response. It's like, well, he was always bad or <laughs> yes. there was never any reason to find him interesting. Yeah. And so this podcast does a great job of explaining why, why he, why he became what he became. Yeah, absolutely does. And uh, let's jump off there in your, in your blog post this week, you talk specifically about one of the things that was at the heart of Driscoll's church at Mars Hill was kind of just hyper masculinism, like this masculinity. Uh, Why do you think again, that was such a draw for people and how ultimately did that kind of hurt the church and kind of play into its demise? Yeah. So he was speaking to a real need and that is there a man, young men in the United States of America are falling behind. Mm. Um, if you're going to look at almost any met- metric, whether it's academic achievement, um, many measures of mental health, you're talking about people who have um, much higher rates of, for example, drug overdoses and things like that. Young men are struggling in our culture. Mm. And so a ministry that says, here is a here is a struggling population, and I'm going to aim my ministry right to them. And I'm going to ma- aim my ministry right to them in a mm-hmm. way that's deeply countercultural. Um, and appeals directly to their manhood and says, I'm going to help you become a better man. Mm. Not just a better person, but a better man is something that really um, now it's not an approach that appeals to all guys. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, mm-hmm. you know, guys have a broad diversity of personalities and predispositions and all of that. But it appealed to a lot of guys. Here is this person saying, 
walking into people's lives who were struggling, who were lost, who were in toxic relationships, who were aimless in their careers. And he was saying, here, look, I'm calling you to something higher. I'm calling you to a a particular purpose Mm. that is going to make you a better man. And I think it was that message hit a, a population that was really struggling in a very important way. And so it, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. And it didn't surprise me at the time to see people respond to him. Yeah. And one of the things you say here about it was the end result was a theology that conformed Christianity to tra- tra- traditional masculinity rather than conformed masculinity to Christianity. And I know you touched on it already, but what does that last part even look like? What is a what does it look like if we get this right and we start conforming masculinity to Christianity? And how's that different than what Driscoll was doing? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things what Dris the what Driscollism did was it committed a common mistake in our response to toxic or negative cultural, secular cultural trends. Often what you do is when you see an overreaction from one side, you counter it with an overreaction to the other side. Mm. And so what was beginning to happen in the 2000s was this a real movement that began to arise in certain circles that said, basically, there's kind of something wrong with guys like um, this, this notion that tr- traditional masculinity, full stop, is harmful. That it's just harmful. And so what ended up happening is there were people who were saying things like, Stoicism. Stoicism is bad. Is it really? It can be bad Mm. and it also can be good or competitiveness. Competitiveness is bad. Is it though? There are manifestations of it that are bad, but then there are manifestations of it that are quite good. And so what they were doing is taking characteristics that are sort of stereotypically masculine and saying these characteristics are bad. Mm. So what Driscollism did was do the opposite. It would sort of say, well, these things are good. You should glory in them. You should be revel in them. And so he really reveled in this very aggressive way of walking into the public square, this sort of hyper-masculine where everything that the secular world might say is bad, we're going to say is good, where the reality is it was a lot more nuanced than that. You know, as I was saying, that there are times when stoicism can be harmful. There are times when stoicism is vital. There are times when aggression is very toxic. And then there's even times when aggression is necessary, such as when you need a, a, a good man to confront an evil man. And, and so, um, and so what was happening was that, that Driscoll was pulling in towards one extreme parts of the secular world were pulling in another extreme and there was another way. And, and the other thing that I, the, the other way though, isn't necessarily a philosophy of masculinity. Mm. That other way is embodied by the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. And so the other way is a person. Um, it, the other way isn't, you know, it may, it's important that, you know, conversations about masculinity are interesting and important. But for the Christian, the way is a person. Hmm. That's the way. And so, um, you know, that was one of my concerns as you began to see all of this unfold. And I put it this way in the sort of the ending. It was as if Driscoll was wanting to make men out of Christians. Like yes. take Christians and make you man up. Yeah. Whereas the reality is the necessity to make Christians out of men. That's a really good word. That's really good. If you're not listening to that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I'd encourage you to do that. We had Mike Cosper on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about it. A little two-part question. 
Does it disturb you or why do you think even Driscoll was able to really not have any kind of restoration process and just go start a church in Arizona that now has thousands of people in it? What does that say about somebody like Driscoll? But also, what's it say about the evangelical church? Well, I, you know, one of the things about uh, that I've long thought about evangelicalism is it's one of its great strengths is also one of its great weaknesses. Hmm. Um that one of its great strengths is that it is um, in many ways so open to innovation. It's, it's open to people who are thinking of new ways to connect with people, mm. thinking of new ways to reach communities uh, in a way that a, a heavily hierarchical um, disciplined institution, you know, often isn't because, you know, large large institutions turning them is like using a small rudder on a super tanker, yeah. right? You're yeah. going to, you're going to have changes often come sometimes come slowly, if not too late. Whereas when you're more decent, decentralized, you can, you often as a movement find yourself, um, you know, innovative and yeah. creative, but also there's a dark side to that. And that is, it's a lot, there's a severe lack of accountability, there's a lack of authority. Um, and so what ends up happening in evangelicalism often is that accountability is not just has to come not just individually through congregations like the Mars Hill elder, Mars Hill's elder elders eventually sort of really um, trying to discipline Mark, but also cultural. In other words, that that it's important that the evangelical culture turn away from uh, toxic personalities and yeah. toxic theologies and that the it's actually easier to get the first part, which is the individual accountability in a in given congregation than it is the second part, which is sort of this cultural rejection. That's right. Um, and so that part is the more difficult part. And it's, and I don't know that there's a great way through it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, evangelicalism is so decentralized. I mean, think of, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant, Protestant denomination, and it is known for local control of congregations. Um, now, there's some degree of discipline that the SBC itself can exercise, but by and large, you know, an SBC congregation is really quite autonomous. And so and and that's the largest denomination in, in Protestant Christianity. So um this idea of institutional evangelical cultural accountability is very elusive. Yeah. It is very elusive. Yeah, that's well put. That's well put. And David, as I was thinking about what to talk to you about today, uh, I, you know, top of the news right now as we kind of shift gears is kind of this ramp up of the Delta variant and COVID-19. Like we feel like we're back where we were up here in Illinois. I know you're in Tennessee. Up here in Illinois, they just passed a mask mandate for all schools, like kind of across the board. And I don't have a great question except to ask, what is your what are you seeing going on? What is it? It feels like we're getting divided more and more and pulled at. So as you're watching the news and you're watching what's going on across the country, I would just love kind of your reflection on what you see going on right now around COVID-19 and the Delta variant. Well, first is heartbreaking yeah. because at this point we're at the stage of you, you almost you can almost say it's a voluntary pandemic mm -hmm. at this point that with the availability of the vaccine and the rejection of the vaccine by so many millions 
that what's happening is that this wave of suffering and death is in many ways self-inflicted in a way that it never was earlier in the pandemic. Mm. And where I am, um, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy where I live. And that vaccine hesitancy is just killing people. It's killing people hundreds a day. It's killing people. And that is absolutely heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. And the second thing is the knowledge that a lot of what is happening now is a result of people choosing not to do the responsible thing and get vaccinated in a pandemic is causing the resentments that have already been simmering and sometimes exploding in the last 18 months. It's compounding them all. Yeah. It's, it's making all of those resentments that much more intense. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, writing and a lot of us are sort of learning a lot on the fly about what pandemics do to cultures and, you know, history does not have a great track record of pandemics uniting <laughs> um, nations and cultures. Uh, it's a shattering effect. It's a deeply damaging uh, effect. And so uh, I think what we're seeing is a lot of cultural damage is being done in addition to just the raw to toll in human lives. I mean, I'm looking right now and the up to the minute total of American lives lost is 633,116, which is just an extraordinary number, just absolutely extraordinary and rising, rising every day. And so I think that, you know, one of the things is it's done is it's it's opened up a, a, a lot of fault lines as in our society and it has exposed uh, some deep, deep dysfunction, dysfunction so deep that people will now reject what is quite frankly a miracle solution to this pandemic. I mean, um, you know, the prior administration deserves credit for Operation Warp Speed. They, the companies Pfizer, Moderna, J&J &J, who developed these vaccines deserve an immense amount of credit for doing this in record time. And then now we're just looking at that miraculous scientific achievement and saying, nope. I don't want that. Yeah. And that is heartbreaking. It is. It is. And with the rest of our time, I guess I would ask this question. Uh, I just the same way it's kind of exposed stuff within our culture. I think you and I would agree it's exposed stuff within the church, kind of the evangelical yes. church. Uh, if you could see one or two things change other than get vaccinated, if you could see one or two things change within the church that would make the church more of a unifier versus what it is, what, what kind of what would one or two of those things be in your opinion? Well, you know, boy, I tell you, it's, I would say, you know, remembering the second two of the three prongs of Micah 6, 8. Mm -hmm. So Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good to act justly? This is the part where uh, the church is walking into American culture full of righteous fury. Some of it actually righteous and some of it not so righteous, <laughs> but it's walking into the culture demanding justice. But then there's these two other elements of it love kindness or love mercy, depending on the translation, and to walk humbly. Mm. And what I'm seeing so often in the church, not everybody, there's some marvelous people doing marvelous things, but not everybody is has this, this challenge. But right now, I'm not seeing as much kindness, and I'm not seeing very much humility. And a lot of that arrogance is incompletely, and that hostility is completely misdirected and completely misaligned. And if you had told me in 2014, if you'd come to me and you'd said, David, in the next few years, here's what you're going to see from partic in particular, the white evangelical church is they're going to bear hug and embrace a serial adulterer who's been uh, accused many times of corroborate with corroboration of sexual assault and sexual harassment. 
who's a serial liar and grotesquely incompetent, and they're going to embrace him as a savior of the American Republic. And also in a pandemic, this uh, Christians are going to be disproportionately resistant to masking um, to protect the, uh, their neighbors against the spread of a deadly virus. And then when a vaccine comes, they're going to be disproportionately hesitant to take the vaccine to stop the spread of a deadly virus. I would have accused you of anti-Christian bigotry. Mm. I would have said there's no way that's the case. There's no way that this community that I've been I'm, that I'm a part of and have grown up in is would react this way. Right. And yet that's what we have seen. And then if you add the kicker on the top that says uh, thousands of praying, singing Christians are going to storm the U.S. Capitol to try to overthrow an election, I would have said you have lost your mind. That is never going to occur. And so it feels as if in many quarters of the church, there is a spiritual darkness, a darkness that has led a big part of the American church to actually become toxic to the American nation. And that is horrifying. Mm. That is horrifying. And those are very strong words. But when you think about things like charging the Capitol, refusing to wear masks in pandemics, refusing a vaccine to end a pandemic, these things are deeply harmful to this nation and our neighbors. And they're coming not exclusively from the church. And there's lots of folks in the church who are doing the right thing and doing the right thing in heroic circumstances, but disproportionately from the church. Mm. And that is devastating. Yeah. Strong words indeed, David. That's why we love having you on. I really appreciate your willingness uh, to tackle hard things and because we need to hear them and we need to wrestle with them. Again, David French, you can find him. He, he blogs at the French Press. You can find him at thedispatch.com. He's a great follow on Twitter at David A. French. That's at David A. French. David, still so much to talk to you about. We're going to do this again soon. We love having you on. Thanks for doing it, friend. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. One thing we've been doing since uh, really back at the beginning of the pandemic, and which of us actually remembers when the pandemic began, uh, but uh, we we kind of shifted to ending our shows with things that will encourage you, things that will challenge you, things that will spur you on and keep you thinking. Like that's kind of the goal here. We used to end with, and maybe we'll go back to this someday, but we used to end the show just with hilarious stories, like from the news that we could find and just crazy craziness. And we'll go back to that someday, but kind of moved into a new thing where we just kind of try to encourage you and inspire you and challenge you and give you things to think. And in order to do that today, I would like to close our show with two different tweets I saw over the weekend uh, from two pastors and authors who, cards on the table, I have a huge amount of respect for. The first guy is by the name of Paul David Tripp. Paul David Tripp wrote a phenomenal book on parenting. Uh, Paul David Tripp, uh, if you're re re listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and I believe in the first episode, uh, Paul David Tripp shows up as the one who was trying to put the brakes on some things there and trying to speak some truth to what was going on. Uh, Paul David Tripp, if, you don't, if you're unaware of his writing or his preaching, I'd encourage you to go check it out. So Paul David Tripp wrote this on Twitter uh, over the weekend. He wrote, God never forgets, ignores, denies, or fails to deliver what he's promised to those who have put their trust in him. Let me read that again. God never forgets, ignores, denies, 
or fails to deliver what he's promised to those who have put their trust in him. So many of us struggle to believe that is true. I know I struggle to believe that to be true, but it begins, it begs the question, how do we first know what God has promised to us? How do we know what those promises are? And I would say, primarily, the answer to that question is scripture. What has God uh, what has God shown to us? What has he said to us? What has he promised to us in scripture? So a couple of them, right? Like, God, you know, he, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so there might be some of you out there going, why has God abandoned me? Why is he so distant? Well, no, we can now hold on to his promises. God is never one who turns his back on his promises. And so it says God never forgets, ignores, denies, or fails to deliver what he's promised. Well, what has he promised? He's promised his presence. He's promised his presence. God has promised uh, that he's at work in our world. And so when things are really dark, when you're at rock bottom and you're like, man, maybe this is all not true. Maybe maybe in the end, darkness does win out. We can hold on to the fact that no, God, the scripture promises that in the end, God wins. He has won uh, and, and he ultimately, that victory will be realized uh, in some point in, in the future. And so we can hold on to that promise when we feel like all, uh, is lost. We can hold on to the promise of that, that God values us, that he calls us his children and that we can say, okay, no, I'm not worthless. I am not without meaning. I'm not any of this stuff, but no, instead I am loved. I am known. I am cherished. And we can hold on to that because God never forgets, ignores, denies, or fails to deliver what he's promised to those who have put their trust in him. We see this in the Old Testament. I mean, just read the book of Judges where it seems like God should turn his back on his people over and over and over again. But God keeps, it's the story of the Israelites over and over and over again. And we see that, uh, we see that in the New Testament and we see that throughout the history of the church. Uh, God does not turn his back on his promises. And we can hold on to that. Some of you need to hear that today because you feel like God's forgotten about you, that God's ignoring you, God is distant, that God has changed his mind. And that is not true. And you can hold on to that. Here's the other one. And I just mentioned this phrase, child of God, uh, Tim Keller, Tim Keller, author of many, many books. I like to joke that Tim Keller has written more books than I've read in my life, but so many of them are so good. So good. He's also formerly the pastor of Redeemer uh, Church in New York City, throughout New York City, uh, prolific speaker. If you're unaware of Tim Keller, I would encourage you to Google him, pick up one of his books, start to become aware of Tim Keller. Tim Keller wrote this on Twitter over the weekend. If you are a child of God, you don't lose your status if you have a bad week. If you are a child of God, you do not lose your status if you have a bad week. Let's unpack that a little bit. Who are the children of God? Well, uh, we learn in the New Testament that if, if I am a follower of Jesus, if I've put my faith in Jesus, my identity is that I've been adopted into God's family, that I am a child of God. And, and uh, that is such an important um, descriptor of our identity, because think about that. Uh, there aren't many more uh, loving relationships, or there shouldn't be many more than parent to child. I don't cause my kids. I don't. I don't look at my kids each day and tell them, uh, "Hey, I need you to prove yourself to me today, and then I'll decide if I'm going to love you." No, I love them by virtue of who they are, not what they do. I love my children 
because they're my children. That doesn't mean they don't frustrate me. That doesn't mean they don't require discipline. That doesn't mean any of this stuff. But I don't, it doesn't, it means that my love is not conditional. My love for my children is unconditional. And so when we are called children of God, when, when we are recognized that we have the perfect father, the perfect heavenly father, then we can also rest secure that his love for us is also unconditional. That he loves us because of who we are and not because of what we can do for him. And that's why it's so important what Keller says. If you're a child of God, which if you're a follower of Jesus, that is who you are. That is what you are. Then you don't lose that status if you just have a bad week. But friends, I'm a pastor, but I'm also somebody who is a, a Christ follower trying to figure this life out. So often we assume that if, if I have a bad week, if I sin, if I struggle, if I don't read my Bible, whatever else it might be, surely God is mad at me and he's going to hold that against me. He might not want that for us, but the same way that I don't kick my kids out of the house if they have a bad week, so our heavenly fathers say, no, 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 but I've got something better for you. But we don't lose our status if we've had a bad week. You know, hopefully my kids don't walk around on eggshells thinking that I'm going to turn my back on them because it's all about what they can do for me. But yet so many of us, uh, well, that's how we treat our heavenly father's view of us. Let me close with this. You in Christ are a child of God, loved more than you could ever imagine, known more deeply than you could ever imagine. And we can rest in that. that, that with that comes security. That is such good news. And as Keller says, that's not temporary. That's not up for how you're doing each week. You are not accepted by God because of what you can do for him, but because of who you are in Christ. That's really good news that I hope is encouraging for you today. Well, I'm glad that you joined us today. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Excited for another day. Until then, I hope that you have a great night. Again, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.